Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia and today we've got a seriously cool guest on the show. We have Holly, who is a human physiologist and a PhD student. Welcome to the show, Holly. Thank you, Amelia. Thank you so much for having me. No worries at all. Going to start with the first question, which I'm really, really curious about. What is your job? Cool. So that's sometimes a tough question, but So I'm a PhD student at the University of Canberra. So for anyone who is unsure about what that means, which I'm sure there is a few, it just means that I'm doing another type of degree after doing my bachelor's degree at uni. So this one is really primarily research focused. So I don't have any exams or normal semesters at uni, which is kind of fun. But I also have some other sort of work that falls into that within the university. So I do some teaching. I'm also involved in student support and outreach programs. And that just involves going around to different schools in the area and facilitating workshops with high school students to get them thinking about what comes next and really encouraging asking questions about what interests them and what paths they can take when they finish school. That sounds like great fun, actually. It is. It's a lot of fun. And thank you for explaining what a PhD is, because I think a lot of people just assume that everyone knows. Yes. Yeah, indeed. And I think it's it's important to take the time to recognize what it really encompasses. And I think we spoke a little before uh, the podcast about how, you know, I didn't even know what a PhD sort of really look like until I started so it's nice to be able to break it down a little bit. And obviously most people hope to have it done in three years you know in in happy dreamland. Whereabouts in the PhD process are you? Yeah so I am still I'm just finishing my first year now so that has gone mostly to plan and I'm just going to keep plotting away at it and hopefully finish a little early and just sort of sit on it till we sort of get it all written up and put together but everything's on track to finish in three years at the moment. Congratulations that's a big deal. Thank you very much. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what question you're asking what kind of research you're doing? Yeah so I am focusing in human physiology so I'm looking at how our cells are functioning in the body and what's happening on a cellular level when we have this uh, sort of burden of disease like high blood pressure, um, for example, and what that does to our cells as we get older. So I get to work a lot with different people from a range of diverse backgrounds and expertise and sort of really focus on answering the question of how can we sort of live healthier, longer lives. That's a really big question to be asking. It is, it is, but fingers crossed we can keep working at it and we can make some good changes in the world. What are some of the experiments that you're doing? We're focusing on some clinical trials and we're looking at sort of older adults and younger adults and doing a bit of data collection with blood samples and saliva samples to analyse the DNA and sort of look at the differences between 
a 30-year-old and a 90-year-old, for example, and sort of look at what's happening and, and what's happened over the years. Yeah, right. So you're comparing at a cellular and a DNA level? Yes, that's correct. That's really interesting. Thank you. I'm glad you think so. <laughs> it's something I know nothing about, so I'm like, I, w- I want to know more. It's really cool. Oh, good, good. <laughs> so what does an average day at work look like for you? Because I feel like it would be quite different to a lot of, for example, office workers. Yes, it is quite different. And I guess something really important to highlight is that an average day is very different every day. And I think you've spoken with a few people on the podcast before who sort of have the same answer where it's a lot of emails and also a lot of spreadsheets, which is true, um, but I don't want that to sound boring. (laughs) Yes, yeah. So lots of spreadsheets, but I don't want that to sound too boring because the whole sort of all of the work that I do, because it is so varied, my days are always different. And that's something that I really, really enjoy. And because it's a sort of a research focused degree, I have to actually do research. So that involves a lot of reading and a lot of writing. But it also means that I have to do a lot of preparation for some of the more clinical research. So any type of that data collection or the clinical trials that I was talking about before, any sort of lab work that I plan to do has to be planned before doing it. That can take some time, but it's really interesting to get down into the nitty gritty. Because I imagine like this year would have been a lot of that paperwork and doing ethics and all that sort of stuff to prep for your trials next year. Yes, that's exactly right. A whole lot of like literature reviews, really sort of synthesising the research question and figuring out what's already been done, what's left to do, sort of how can we tap into these little niche areas that need exploring. And I think that's one of the really interesting things about being a PhD student as well is you, like what your average day is, not that there is an average day, but that also changes massively throughout the process of doing the PhD. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like a week my last week was very, you know, writing intense, but next year, you know, each day would be involved like a lot of lab work in the labs with people, engaging with communities as well to sort of get the research out there and get participants and all of that sort of stuff as well. How have you gone about the process of finding the gap for you to sort of like find the answer to? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think it takes some time because it's really easy to think, you know, like, oh, I'm going to do a PhD and I'm interested in X. But if you are interested in X, odds are that it's already been studied a lot. And so being able to really sort of pull what you're interested in and maintain that enthusiasm for what you are interested in, but find new ways of exploring it and sort of start piecing things together to figure out what exactly you're going to be doing and what exactly your PhD will look like. It takes a lot of thinking. A lot of thinking, a lot of mind maps for me. I'm quite a visual learner so it was a lot of mind maps, a lot of brainstorming sessions with my supervisors and yeah a lot of thinking. 
they're the best ones where you've like where anything's possible and you get to think about all the things and see like start thinking about all the connections yeah that's it and I think like because human physiology it's seems quite broad when I talk about it because we're thinking you know everything that's happening in the human body at once which is a lot of stuff so trying to focus on just one sort of aspect and how it links to a few things can actually be quite difficult because there's so much happening at any one time you really have to think more about how your research question can encompass that as well. It's an incredibly complex system to be working within. Definitely. What are some of the skills that you need that you've noticed so far that you need to be able to do a PhD? I think you need to have like your basic communication and interpersonal skills. So knowing how to talk to people and work with people is quite crucial. I don't think anyone could could do a PhD by themselves. It I, I imagine it would be very difficult. So being able to collaborate with people and work with people from such a range of sort of backgrounds can be really rewarding and a lot of really good experience for you. Um, I also think you need to have some level of emotional or mental resilience as well because there's a lot of things that won't go to plan. So being able to adapt to sort of each moment and still maintain that same level of enthusiasm that you started with is really important. But that's sort of something that you can develop over time. And I also think you need to have some self-discipline and take a lot of initiative because a PhD is almost entirely self-paced and self-instructed. So there's no standard script or timetable or protocol for what you do. So it's something that's so different for everyone. But I think most of the skills you can definitely learn on the job. And I think that could come as a bit of a shock, particularly if you've come out of your undergrad where everything is kind of like set out and you've got due dates throughout a semester and yeah, it's all kind of very rigid and then you get let loose into honours or a PhD where it can be a lot looser. Yeah, exactly. And you're sort of expected to to have this new threshold that you can function at to achieve everything that you need to achieve but not a lot of guidance on sort of when you should be doing what but I really I was quite lucky I had a a few friends who were doing their PhDs um, before I actually applied to do mine so I was asking a lot of questions about you know what what their schedule looks like and and all of these things so that I could sort of go into it with a bit more of a open mind. That sounds like a really wise thing to have done because you've kind of found mentors who are a couple of years ahead of you so they're still close enough that they they remember what it was like and they can give you relevant advice but they are that bit further ahead so they can yeah look back with I guess good knowledge yeah definitely and I think like mentorship is so so important to me and um, I've been really really lucky to have a lot of informal but also formal mentors throughout my whole university experience so far so If anyone listening is considering doing a PhD, I definitely recommend talking to as many people as you can to to sort of get that picture and guidance in your head already. I think that's really great advice because like a PhD is this massive project that you need to manage like it's a huge project. And if you haven't started thinking about it like that, it it could go pear-shaped quite quite quickly. Yeah, definitely. I think a, a lot of people would 
would find that quite challenging in the first few months, uh, especially when you don't really know what you should be doing and nothing's, you know, due for a while. So you've got a lot of time to really ruminate on, on what your days are looking like. And that's a very easy space to get lost in. A hundred percent. How have you ended up doing a PhD? What was your path, say, from high school to where you are now? So from high school, I I was always really interested in science and STEM as a whole. So I chose to do a lot of those subjects in high school. And I grew up in Goulburn in New South Wales, which is a, a small town about an hour away from Canberra. So when I was in year 12, I I really just wanted to be anywhere but there. So I I thought, like, how can I get out of here and still do science? So I applied to go to uni in Sydney where I, I did go to, but when I got there, I just felt so out of my element and I was talking to such incredible people who were there because they wanted to find a cure for cancer and I was just like, oh, I'm... I'm just here because I really like science. Um, And so I didn't really have any clue about what my path would be or or what I wanted out of it at the time. So I decided to take some time and take a gap year and sort of get a bit of perspective on the world and reassess what I wanted. So after that, I decided I just wanted to be a bit closer to home and study something that was broad enough that I would get a taste of everything, but also specific enough to narrow down my options as my interests sort of developed. So that's when I applied to study Bachelor of Science at UC. And it wasn't until my third year that I knew I wanted to hone in my focus into the field of physiology. And it wasn't until about a month before I submitted my honours thesis that I really knew I wanted to pursue this particular path for the moment. Was there anything that happened in that journey that made you go, yes, human physiology is the thing for me? I think it was a lot of trial and error. I definitely was not the best student in my first couple of years at uni. Um, I failed a lot of, not a lot, I failed a few subjects, which if I went back now, I'm sure I could do really well in. But at the time, I just had no sort of clear direction or desire uh, to sort of light that fire inside me and and chase that sort of path but there were some subjects that I did really disease focused and I just sort of it wasn't an effort for me anymore to try it was it just came very naturally and I sort of thought well that's you know it's fun it's enjoyable and I can do it well so I'm just going to do that. That sounds like a great sign like when you, you stop having to battle so hard and things start to flow a little bit, that's usually a sign that you're on a good path. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you say that. That's definitely how it felt. You mentioned you took a gap year. Do you mind if I ask what you did during that time? Um, so I just spent a lot of time working and saving money and I did a lot of traveling as well. Yeah, that was, that was about it. It's, it's pretty standard gap year, but I think yeah, <laughs> like – they can be so underrated in helping people sort of do the transition from school to uni and get get that extra bit of perspective. Yeah, and I when I left high school, I was adamant that I wasn't going to take a gap year. I was just going to go straight into uni and, you know, had all of these 
great ideas planned out, but when I actually got there and was in the thick of it, I was just like, this is not for me right now. And it took a lot to realize that and take a step back and know that I just needed time to sort of get that perspective and, and sort of reshape how I was looking at things and think about what I really wanted as well, because I don't think I was doing that. I was just sort of picking something that I thought would be a good idea at the time and not really sustainable. But yeah, it definitely helped to shape those decisions that I made. That's awesome. I managed to take two gap years eventually. So I'm I'm a fan of them. <laughs> That's fantastic. I think after I submit my PhD thesis, I'm going to take a gap year. I've decided. <laughs> you will have so earned it. <laughs> what did you do for your gap year? My first one, I worked and I traveled um, and I went to a bunch of like science camps in Europe, which was really awesome. And the second one I just took off during the middle of uni to work because, you know, you need money. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That sounds awesome, travelling around Europe at science camps. That is so cool. It's a good way to do it. For sure. Did you also find, like, coming from country Australia, that moving to Sydney, which is notably a very big city, was that a bit of a shock to the system as well? Yeah, it was a super big shock. Lots of people everywhere, lots of traffic, lots of everything happening at once. It was quite overwhelming. I still, I'd go back to Sydney to visit, but I still don't think I could live there yet. (laughs) Yeah, it was quite a shock to the system. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about Canberra. You've got two really good universities, but you've also got a bit of a bit of a country kind of vibe. Yeah, it's, it's a really good mix of, you know, the bush and then city without being too overwhelming. And I think that's something that we don't necessarily talk to young people enough about is that the environment that you're trying to study in does make a big impact on how sustainable student life is for you. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's why I knew there was, I was kind of not embarrassed, but I was very disappointed in myself when I got to Sydney and it I knew it wasn't for me because I'd spent so long planning this whole thing for myself that when it didn't, you know, fit exactly how I wanted it to, it was um, quite confronting. So really sort of hitting that home to students, high school students who are in rural and regional areas, just, you know, thinking that it's okay if it's not what you thought it would be. I, I don't think it can be overstated how important that message is sometimes the big city lights that they're not for everyone and it's exhausting so many people yes so many people just so much stimulation and you can never find parking and all those sorts of things and rent's expensive oh so expensive and then it's never easy with public transport you've got to get like three different buses and that's what (laughs) it's so true (laughs) were there some sort of key events that happened on your career path that have helped you get to where you are now? Like were there things that maybe happened while you were at high school that really kind of inspired your love for science? I don't think, I think it sort of goes back, like even when I was really, really young, I think my dad and I spent a lot of time outside and building things and looking at the stars. So I was really sort of always fascinated by the world around us and how everything worked. So I guess 
in high school, sort of having the opportunity to ask all those questions was really important. And I don't think there was ever a specific moment in high school where I was like, oh, yeah, this is what I want to do. And I don't think I ever would have seen myself in in this position um, now. But it was all a very sort of, it had been happening, it was in the works for a long time uh, throughout my childhood and then into high school. Um, but I think I, I touched on it briefly before, but a lot of the failures that I've sort of had throughout leaving high school and then starting university, that has all really shaped my perspective and experience uh, so far. And I definitely, I think I have to thank a lot of my lecturers and course conveners for their support and encouragement over those times because without that I would not have had the confidence to pursue something like this and I think I've been able to meet a lot of really intelligent and down-to-earth academics who have all played such a cumulative role in shaping my career journey so far. I love that so it's lots of well it's developing the resilience that comes from failure which is so important but it's also lots and lots of little interactions that kind of build up over time yeah definitely do you remember what you wanted to be when you're in high school like when all the adults were asking you what are you going to be when you grow up do you remember what you'd say I was actually like I want to be a doctor I was thinking more medical doctor but I yeah that was what I wanted to be in high school before that in primary school I really wanted to be an astronaut and then my dad was like, you need 2020 vision to be an astronaut. And I was like, oh, I don't have that. But um, turns out you need a lot more to be an astronaut. And then it sort of led into doctor and now I'm here. Fantastic. It, it also helps if you have American citizenship to be a, um, an astronaut. What happened to the plan to becoming a doctor, if you don't mind me asking? Not much like I was still even at the start of this year I was I was still considering maybe after I finish my PhD if I went and did to medical school uh to become a medical doctor but I don't know it's still I guess I know it's always gonna be there I think it would be very challenging for me to go through it all again like uh you know, starting from point A and then going through another three plus years to get it. I just think I'm at a stage in my life where I'm ready to work a real job, (laughs) for lack of a better word, for a few years before I sort of consider that. It's a lot of study. A lot of study and a lot of like placements around the place, which would be really, really rewarding. I think, but yeah, maybe maybe a few years down the track. I really like that you're not rushing it because so many people rush it. I know, and I think of like so many people that I know who are doctors and, you know, were doctors before they were, you know, in their 27 or 28 or whatever and I'm sort of approaching that age and I'm like, oh, I should be doing it now, but taking that step back again and just realising everyone's on a different timeline and there's really 
no point in rushing. I've got a lot of things I want to tick off before I sort of think about doing that. Good. (laughs) (laughs) What is it that gets you really, really excited about getting up in the morning and even if you're facing a day of doing a lot of reading, what helps you get excited about doing your job well? I guess just knowing that it's it's all over the place. So having something different to focus on all the time has helped me sort of get through doing the less exciting things. So knowing that, um, you know, one day it might be full of meetings and brainstorming with my supervisors and then the next day I know I'm going to be in the lab or designing a new experiment or a protocol and then the next day I could be analysing data and then the next day writing about that. So I can definitely see how that wouldn't appeal to a lot of people, but I really like that my job is a whole heap of problem solving. And I love that I have the the potential, I guess, to contribute to science and develop new techniques and methods for how to do something and maybe even one day solve a really groundbreaking problem. That would be really cool. That's a pretty strong driver to have. Like there's a lot of potential there. Yeah, yeah, there is. What advice would you give to a young person who's considering kind of an academic science pathway? Like what would you tell to young Holly? I would say just keep asking questions because you can do a PhD in almost anything. Like I was listening to a podcast the other day where a guy did his PhD on the eyes of jumping spiders and I've seen publications from PhDs uh, looking at how different birds can appreciate different types of art. So like knowing that there is so much room out there, like keep asking questions and you'll find gaps that need to be filled and if something interests you, like just really follow it because I think – If anyone is considering a path to sort of academia and doing a PhD, remember that you really need to enjoy your topic because you will live and breathe it for so many years. So that will help a lot. And I think it's really easy, particularly when you're studying science at school, to get this impression like we know everything because there's these textbooks that are written and there's all these diagrams and it's all like, it's all sorted out. And I think when we realise that you can still be the first person to ask a question or you might be the first person who's able to bring together different fields and different pieces of knowledge, I think that can be really exciting and that's part of that asking questions. Don't think that everything's sorted out. Yeah, exactly. Like there's always going to be problems that need to be solved um, as we go through life and I think – it was it was easy for a lot of really groundbreaking things to be discovered a hundred years ago because we didn't have the the sort of tools and the the embedded knowledge back then. Um, so there was sort of this influx of all of these new discoveries and really exciting things. But we can still have that same excitement now. It's just going to look a bit different. And part of that as well is like as our technology improves and as our tools improve, that's going to allow us to ask questions and answer questions that like even 20 years ago, they were like, it's a cool question, but we don't have the check to be able to answer that. Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of stuff with, you know, like 
like what you do in the web developer sort of sphere and then you know there was the the probe that was going around and collecting space dust the other day like that's awesome and we would not have had the the resources to do that a hundred years ago but we do now and like the tech that we play with with web development some of it wasn't around three years ago like there's not even time to do PhDs on it because it moves too quick Exactly. And then, you know, we're, we're in this space where it's like, okay, we've got all these really, really cool tools that we can use. So how can we best implement them? And, you know, it's, it's hard to keep up, but it's good because it means that everything's constantly improving. I think there's a lot of hope for scientific research into the future. We're going to be able to ask some really cool questions and answer some really cool questions. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Is there anything mature age people could do to help support your research? Like, is there any kind of citizen science that you'd like to get people involved with or anything like that? I think it really depends on sort of the scale that they'd like to be involved in. Like, there's always sort of opportunities to to be involved indirectly. So, like, whether that's reading a paper or attending a speaking event and familiarising yourself with the local research that's happening in your area. Or even, I think, a really big thing, a lot of researchers, especially young researchers, struggle getting participants in their trials. So being a participant in a research study could be really, really cool and a really fun way to get involved and know that you've contributed to research as well. How would people find out about them, like if they're interested? How could they get involved? I think there's a lot of focus on like so like really getting out there on social media and promoting yourself and your research. So looking on Twitter is a really good way to sort of see what's happening in in the sort of STEM field. And we a lot of uh, the researchers in my area advertise on Twitter and Facebook, a lot of community groups as well. But even just expressing your interest with a university or an institution that is planning to do trials is another way that you could sort of get involved. I like it. Get to know your local researchers. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Because they're humans too. Quite important to remember. Exactly. It's a really, really big thing to remember. You mentioned ages ago that you do a bit of outreach with schools. Would you like to share some of the stuff that you talk to school students about? Yeah, I think we spend a lot of time making sure that we're not there as like a university recruiter. We're not there to say, you've got to go to university. And if you do go to university, come to our university. We're really there to sort of open up the minds of students and whether it is following a university path or whether that's focusing on vocational training or TAFE, CIT, I don't know what it's called in Melbourne, but focusing on just the options after high school pretty much. And it could just be going straight into the workforce or it could be, you know, getting a a certificate or or something to increase your your sort of, uh, not employability, but your skills for that on-the-job sort of training. That sounds really cool. It is really cool. And we always have, like, if students are particularly interested in coming to university and experiencing what it's like we do I do some science workshops facilitate those with some high school students and some primary school students as well to sort of open 
open the eyes to the niche areas of science. Like we do some food science and epidemiology to sort of let them know, hey, this might be a job that you've never thought about doing, but you could do it. Very lucky students. I like to think so. Are there any questions that you've been asked by a young person that particularly have stood out to you? There has been a lot of times, but I'm really struggling to remember right now. Um, <laughs> oh, I remember once I was doing a workshop and I was preparing, I thought it was going to be for um, like years nine and 10, but when it was like a really last minute thing and then when the students actually got there I found out they were in year five and I was like oh Oh, so they were nine and ten year olds yes and I was like oh I'm gonna have to change this but they were so on top of it like I was talking about genetic modification and they were like oh yeah I know about that and I was just so impressed I was like you guys are all over this you don't need me fantastic I think I once stood up in front of some preps with a slide that had the word geopolitical on it and I was like I might need to change the slide yeah did they know no oh okay (laughs) it was was a very awkward moment I learned a lot in that moment uh yes yeah I think I think that's a really cool thing like as sort of you know when you're more senior in science you sort of function at a level where you expect everyone to know what you're talking about so it's really quite refreshing coming down and like speaking to younger people and people who know nothing about what you're doing because it really makes you check yourself and you're just like hmm there's ways that we can talk about this differently I think it's so important a hundred percent and it really sort of focusing on that science communication and making it's so more accessible to people is is something that I really value in the STEM sort of sphere. Speaking of that kind of science communication, is there anything about whether it's about doing a PhD or whether it's about your research field that you feel that there's miscommunication or sorry, misinformation out in the the general public that you'd kind of like to squash or you'd sort of like to do a bit of myth busting? I think a lot of people sort of don't get it when I say that my job is doing my PhD because I think it's hard to remove the, the student from PhD student. Um, and like we have previously mentioned, doing a PhD is such a massive undertaking and it really is a full-time job. Like there's some weeks where you're doing your standard nine to five and then there's some weeks where you're working like 70 hours and you can't remember if you've had a shower that morning or if you dreamed it so I think like really hitting home that it's necessary to sort of understand that uh, doing a PhD it is a job and I know I I used the the term getting a real job uh, before but that sort of comes into play in this because we're sort of led to believe that because we're still studying it's it's not a real job but it is and it's sort of it is necessary for people to understand that because for one people need to know what they're getting themselves into like I said before I didn't even know what doing a PhD looked like until I was actually doing it so being able to break that down and also so that people know the magnitude of all the work that goes into getting things like grants or writing a manuscript or 
getting ethics approved, like we talked about. Like they're such big things that take a lot of time and work that goes into them. So for people to understand that, yeah, it's it's my job. Like it really is and it's it's really rewarding but it's really difficult. Yeah, and I, I can see a lot of people, particularly if they've only ever done a bachelor's and they they hear that you're doing you're still a student and they're like oh cool so so you're just like hanging around free barbecues and you know doing whatever they did in their student days as opposed to working your bum off yeah and it is like I think I lose sight of that because a lot of my friends who are still studying they're like oh like have you got any exams I'm like no I I just have one really big thing that I'm doing at the end but not at the moment or like they're like oh like what days are you at uni this week I'm like every day I I live there (laughs) yeah you don't just get to rock up for one two-hour lecture and your day's over yeah I wish though I really wish (laughs) nah because then then you wouldn't be you know pushing the frontiers of science exactly exactly it's um it is nice knowing that you you rock up and you put work in and then you get to go home and yeah it's it's a really rewarding job is there anything else you'd like to share that we haven't touched on not really i just want to say thank you for taking time to chat with me and for developing this awesome podcast just out of sheer interest i'm still blown away by that that is so awesome um and i really hope i really hope that the listeners get something out of it thank you well it's positive feedback so far so thank you thank you have you got a virtual high five for anyone is there someone out there who's just doing a really really awesome job who you'd like everyone who listens to this podcast to give a massive virtual high five to I would like to shout out Pine of Science Australia so I'm biased because I'm one of the coordinators for our Canberra event but it's basically like a science in the pub type vibe, but we really welcome families and encourage coming along to listen to some really cool scientists talk about their amazing research. And it's a great opportunity to hear about all of the science that's happening in your own backyard and ask a lot of questions. We're really big on questions. Um, and we host events every year over three nights in May. This year that looked a little different and it might look a little different next year. We don't know, but just being aware that, um, you know, there's initiatives like this out there to really make science more accessible to the public. Um, I think that's really cool and I'm all about it. So I'd love to share that and get that out there. Thank you. That's, that's awesome. Thank you. Have you got, have you got something that we can link to in the show notes? Yes, I do. I have a website. I can send you the website. Fantastic. Do you know if there are equivalents in other states and territories? There is where all over the world, actually. So um, whether you're in Spain or you're in Australia, um, three nights in May every year, uh, Point of Science will be happening. We've got events in Melbourne, Newcastle, Queensland, all over Australia. Okay, so there's no excuse for the listeners. No excuse not to come down. Tickets are only $5, I think. So, like, it's just a great way to support local scientists and really get the lay of the land in everything that's happening. 
And ask all those questions that I know you secretly want to. Yes, yes, exactly. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Holly. It's been an absolute delight and I think we've got some really lovely little bits of little truth bombs to uh, share with everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was really nice to, to have a chat. Thanks so much for tuning in this year. If you like this podcast, you should head to avidresearch.com.au where you can sign up to our email newsletter. You can also now sign up to our Patreon, which means that if you so choose, you can financially support Avid Research. And I have a massive shout out to our very first Patreon, David Lee, who is a fantastic human being. As a result of being a Patreon, he now gets to ask questions. He gets behind the scenes footage and behind the scenes chats. And he also gets his name shouted out at the end of every podcast. So thanks so much, David. And if you want to be number two, you should head to avidresearch.com.au and click support us on Patreon. That'd be fantastic. 